the year is 1987, and this podcast won't be ignored. The movie, Fatal Attraction. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the show where we're trying to find the 100 best movies of all time. And when we do, we are sending them into space. We are officially in our villain series. Today we'll be talking about Fatal Attraction, the villain of Glenn Close. Or is it Michael Douglas? We'll see. We'll see who the real villain is in just a little bit. But speaking about villains, we start to cross that line a little bit in our last two episodes. Like, who is a hero? Who is a villain? And specifically in regards to Starship Troopers, Amy, did you notice that some people believe that the bugs didn't even throw the asteroids at Buenos Aires? Yeah, that they were calling it a false flag operation, which I admit, I felt naive. I didn't even consider that. But the argument was... Do you see the bugs being capable of that sort of long-term planning and anything else they do? They sit on the on their planet and they shoot lasers out of their ass. That's all they do. Well, they're not flying anywhere. Well, I mean, are those lasers, I mean, are they just lasers or are they bigger? I mean, I thought they were also shooting meteors out of their ass, but maybe you're right. Maybe just them shooting lasers out of their ass might break apart another planet and create asteroids, but I don't think it was intentional. I think that was the idea we were talking about at the end, like, is this a victory for, like, who is to blame here? Because these are not sentient beings. They don't seem sentient to me. I mean, it's interesting when you look at, like, how excited this whole culture is in Starship Troopers to be at war, to be at this forever war. I, I, yeah. I mean, really, that is just what I could keep thinking to myself is like, man, I've been living through this. And I still didn't even assume that anybody in the news was lying in this movie. Ah! What will it take? How many movies until they sharpen up? I know we just were believing what the newscast said. There we go. I know. And, you know, I threw it out there that, like, man, we just did Robocop and Starship Troopers back to back. Every single time I see a Verhoeven, I'm like, man, this is the best Verhoeven. No, this is the best Verhoeven. It's exactly how I feel about the Coen brothers and Tarantino movies. And so I was like, man, I cannot decide which one I would really prefer as a space contender between Starship Troopers and Robocop. And the filmmaker, Rodney Asher, who just does these documentaries that I think are genius, he really summed it up for me on Twitter. He said, Robocop is a better movie, but Starship Troopers is a better work of art. And I thought, that's exactly it. Robocop feels more like a complete film to watch on its own. And Starship Troopers feels like the greater artistic statement. And that is the, that he, he, he didn't solve the question for me, but he, he illustrated what I'm wrestling with. You know, that's a really interesting point of view, again, based on the reaction that we got from a lot of people on the Discord and on Twitter, people still think that the satire here really kind of prevents them from really enjoying it as a good film. Like the satire almost uh, puts up a barrier like, oh, I'm just watching soap opera actors do bad line readings. Like, oh, the, the dialogue is so bad. But if it's intentional, is that a better work of art? I think that that's the argument. But if you can't see the work of art, then maybe the argument is right. The straight down the middle movie is the better movie or work of art. I know. I mean, I guess that's why they call it art. Like, right? 
Because it just, you just want to stare at it and ask a million questions. Well, I got to tell you, Amy, I was almost convinced that we were doing a third Verhoeven movie because for the longest time, I was confused about Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction. I just m- mashed them up as the same movie. Like They have similar titles, obviously. They have uh, elite um, two actors, Stuart Penkin and Michael Douglas, who are the same. And I'm so happy that I stopped watching Basic Instinct midway through when I realized I think I'm watching the wrong movie because I know that we weren't doing another Verhoeven. Wait, and- you really watched? I thought you were going to tell me that you watched Fatal Instinct. The oh, Armand Asante, no. I mean, Sean Young movie that. where yes. she kills his skunk. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh, that. And then I was going to watch Silence of the Hams with Dom DeLuise. <laughs> uh, all the classics. Um, no, but I was uh, I was genuinely confused. But both of these films I never saw. I never saw Basic Instinct. I never saw Fatal Attraction uh, before today. Oh my goodness. Yeah, but I knew that, so much about so it. Exciting. That's so yeah, exciting that you really get to watch to them watch. as like grown-ups who have some sort of idea what's happening on the screen. Yeah, I think I always viewed these movies as being very adult. Like they didn't seem to me even like fun, sexy, like sliver. You know, uh they just felt like these are adult movies that had adult themes that were not for me and I had no interest in them. It was a a lot of rich white people sitting around Manhattan apartments eating caviar. And, you know, I put this in the same category as like presumed innocent. You know, it was like, okay, great. I understand that Han Solo's in this movie, but it's not for me. Wait, does this mean you've never even seen Body of Evidence, the one where Madonna uh, hits it with Willem Dafoe? Yes, for how did this get made? I did oh, see that right. for how did this get made. Yes, uh, I did. I just saw it, but I just saw it for how did this get made. I definitely saw that movie when I was way too young. It again, it was just you know that one. I think actually felt like it was maybe too dirty, and I couldn't figure out how to see it. Like you know, there's always that moment, or at least for me, it was where I wanted to see these movies that were like dirty, but uh, then by the time I got old enough to watch them, I'd just forgotten about them, so I never went back. <laughs> I definitely saw Body of Evidence in the theater, but I have no idea how because I should not have been allowed to. And I'm very sure my parents weren't there. Well, I told you I saw Color of Night in the theater with my parents, which was a (laughs) very sexy movie with uh, some Bruce Willis peen and him having. uh, Yeah. And there's a lot there's a lot going on there. But uh, I definitely saw some adult movies, but they just never really they didn't call to me as much as, uh, you know, others. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I'm glad that you are entering into the world of 80s adult anxiety now in the year of our Lord 2022. Uh, well, there we are. <laughs> and look, this is just the beginning. I'm ready for all the erotic thrillers. By the way, isn't uh, Karina doing a whole series on erotic thrillers right now? Yeah, she wrapped up the 80s and now she's going into the 90s. Ooh, can't wait to listen to that. Well, without any further ado, Amy, shall we... Unspool it. The year is 1987. The Simpsons first appear in a short clip on The Tracy Allman Show. President Reagan tries to unify Berlin with his request for Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down this wall. Look at that great impression. I'm giving you impressions right out of the gate. Prozac makes its debut in the U.S. And the unspooled films of the year are Raising Arizona, The Princess Bride, Robocop, and now Fatal Attraction. Amy, Who's in it, what's it about, and what was on the radio? Fatal Attraction. It is directed by Adrian Lin from a screenplay and actually an original short TV movie that was written and directed by James Dearden. Dearden here shows up and expands on his own short script. Michael Douglas plays Dan Gallagher, a New York lawyer who loves his life, loves his wife. His wife is played by Ann Archer. He loves his little girl, Ellen. 
Even so, when his wife is out of town, Dan takes the opportunity to spend the weekend flirting and salsa dancing and dog walking and having lots of sexy sex with a woman that he just met through his work, Alex Forrest, played by Glenn Close. When the weekend is over, Dan thinks he can just slide back into his normal life. No harm, no foul. But Alex is pregnant and she will not be ignored. Take a listen. A look that led to an evening. We are attracted to each other at the party. That was obvious. You're on your own for the night. That's also obvious. A mistake he'd regret all his life. And where's your wife? here with a strange girl being a naughty boy. I don't think having dinner with anybody's a crime. I've got to see you. This is going to stop. No, it's not going to stop. It's going to go on and on. She keeps calling the apartment. Hello? Every time Beth answers the phone, she hangs it. I'm scared, Jimmy. You play fair with me? Do you have an affair with her? I'll play fair with you. I don't want to lose my family. How could you do that? Now you're scared of me, aren't you? You're afraid. If you ever come near my family again, I'll kill you, you understand? Daddy! I'm not going to be ignored! Alicia, where's Ellen? She's gone. Call the police! Whatever resentment she's feeling, she's probably got it out of her system. Ah! What if she didn't get it out of her system? What then? Ah! Fatal attraction. I guess you thought you'd get away with it. Well... Attraction was released on September 18th, 1987, and it was a cultural phenomenon. You cannot overstate this. We are talking it was number one on the box office charts for eight weeks. Eight weeks in a row. It got six Oscar nominations, didn't win any, but six Oscar nominations, and it got literally every hot take think piece on the planet written about it right then. This $14 million movie grossed $320 million worldwide at the box office, making it the number one movie that year on the entire planet. In America, it was number two. Uh, Number one was Three Men and a Baby, which I think is just such a weird insight into the American psyche at the end of the Reagan era that I don't even know where to start. Uh, But what was number one on the Billboard charts that weekend? A song that needs absolutely nothing from me to explain why it was so apropos. It is by Michael Jackson. Here it is. I just can't hold on. I feel we belong. My life ain't worth living. And I can't be with you. I just can't stop loving you. I just can't stop loving you. And if I stop, then tell me just what will I do? Oh. Perfect song. I wish they would have used that to score this movie. It would have made the ending uh, a little bit more jaunty. Maybe you would have left with a little bit more pep in your step. Wait, you're uh, right. Yeah, now I'm picturing like playing that song over the ending instead of the actual ending song, which is uh, not quite a happy ending song itself. I mean, that song, that song says, oh man, I just can't stop loving you. It goes out noble for Glenn. Okay, it does. It does. It does indeed. And uh, I got to tell you, you know, when Michael Douglas is making this movie, he's also shooting Wall Street. He's alternating every other day on each film. So Wall Street one day, and the next day, uh, Fatal Attraction. You know, they're both interesting movies. I wouldn't say that they're the same, but I do think that Wall Street shows the downside of living 
a certain lifestyle, right? Like how it kind of corrupts you. And this is a different point of view, which is like, you should be able to get away with it. Everything is okay. Um, and it, it's just an interesting or, attitude or, or for Or Michael time. Douglas should believe because of his society that he should be able to get away with it. But the audience, I think, is allowed to have some doubt. Right. But I think that's actually, though, a 2022 lens that we're putting on it. Because now we can look at it and go like, oh, my gosh, look at the inflated ego of this guy. Like, this is a, a remnant of of the past. Like, this type of energy and attitude, right? Like, I feel like... So oh, I don't know if it's of the past. I think it might still very much be of the present. I well, mean, maybe it's more hidden, right? Or or something. I, I don't know. There's an energy here that I don't. It just feels very of its time. But maybe well, you're right. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. I, th- I mean, I think. I mean, I think that is one of the interesting things to talk about here. I think there's like hints in this movie that he does live in a world that you know doesn't necessarily respect having wives too much. Like even his best friend, like in front of him is calling his wife, his like ball and chain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's my wife. All right, ladies, I'll let my touch it, please, ladies. Gentlemen, my wife, ball and chain. Mother of some of my children. Here, Mr. Miller, Goodman, Hearst, and I mean, they're all laughing and I think it's like a sweet scene. But also we've seen this guy like he, himself, his best friend, try to like hit a little bit on Glenn Close when his wife was in the room. Like you get a sense that this Dan character is steeped in a world where it's sort of like, ah, boys will be boys. Locker room talk. But I don't think you that- also think that they they go uh, above and beyond to also show that his relationship with Ann Archer is actually a really good relationship? Like, I feel like... Ann Archer in this movie, like I'm in love with Ann Archer in this movie. Like she is like a three-dimensional character. She's fun. She's interesting. She's caring. Uh, she like seems to have a good relationship with him. Like there is a playfulness. Like obviously the Dan character is saying, oh, that's my ball and chain. But he's not saying that to his wife and she's not saying that to him. They don't have any tension there. Like they actually, the biggest tension that they have is that she wants to move to Connecticut. And with, again, a beautiful 80s idea. And he wants to stay in the city. But, but that's like, what makes this a horror movie to me. That yeah. like you could be Ann Archer and have this lovely life. And like your husband will still be like. Why not? Right. I, I, I and that talk, I think though, makes it. Like, I think that that makes this movie so frightening, right, to most people. Because I think what you're saying is, if everything in your life is right, the money is right, the job is right, your relationship is right, you have a kid, everything is working perfectly, and still it can all fall apart. Well, it's, I just al- it's that, almost yeah. like he's like I I don't know like. He's running around a grocery store and he has his hands all full of like cakes, right? And he's got all the cakes. He's got like the wife and the job and the cute kid and the bigger house and the best friend. And he's got a whole world. He's got a lunch coming up with his boss. And he reaches for just one extra cake because he gets greedy. And then it all falls down. Right. Yeah. Watching their life in the beginning of this movie, I'm like, oh, I want to live here. Everything here is kind of perfect. Well, it's perfect, but it's perfect in a way that I think is like extra plus perfect because it's not too perfect. That sounds kind of complicated. But what I mean is like Adrian Lyne has this way of capturing 
Michael Douglas and Ann Archer's domestic life in the beginning that I think is just, it's wonderful. It's not like here's our immaculate home with like the giant vases Mm -hmm. of flowers and everybody's dressed in their cargo pants or whatever. It's like this natural home where like the kid is wearing his shirt, where Michael Douglas is in his underwear and Archer's sort of walking around kind of casually rumpled in her underwear. And it feels like the most normal home. It feels like a normal home in a way that I don't even feel like I see in movies very much. Because I think no, usually it, in movies, it's everybody's messy, like, but yeah, it's it, like, but it's, it's like, it's upper middle class messy, right? Like it's, it's not, it's not, um, perfect, right? It's not like they are this rich, uh, couple with, you know, maids and, and, uh, and they don't, you know, they, they are like things it, to me, as someone who lived in New York for such a long time, it's so hard to find like a great, uh, version of a New York city apartment that actually looks real. And this felt to me like, very rich couple, but also in a real New York City apartment. Like they're cramming everything in there. That's why they want to leave the city. Like they, but I mean that. But it but also it's, feels it's to me cozy. There's like you right. see this like intimacy right away that I think is even better than the fact that they're rich. That this couple right. just seems so comfortable with each other. Like that's worse to me than them right. being wealthy. Is that they just seem to like really feel natural and loving. I mean, oh, well, I love that. But I guess what you're saying though is like we're we're seeing this like. I guess, normal state of domestic bliss, right? It's like, it's just, it's the norm. It's, it's what happens in most relationships. Like you have a kid, you're doing your jobs, you're just functioning around each other. It doesn't seem like there's any love lost. It just feels like this is the, I wouldn't even say tedium because tedium makes it feel negative. It's, this is what this lifestyle is. Like, you know, it, like, I think it's a very, and this is why I think the movie is really smart. It does paint a realistic picture of what being married is with a kid. It does. I mean, I think that's what I really appreciate about like Lyon's direction is like, he just has this eye for capturing stuff that makes this couple feel really, really real stuff that doesn't necessarily factor into the plot, but that just makes you buy Ann Archer and Michael Douglas as having this like long bond stuff like, Early on, you know, they're walking to the car together as like as um, Ann Archer's leaving for the country and she has their little daughter spit her gum in her hand. And that's that kind of thing that you're like, you never see that in a movie. Put your gum in my hand, blah, blah, blah. But like, that's kind of that seems like parenthood to me. I mean, I don't have a kid, but I assume that like a lot of parenthood is like your kids put gross things in your hand and it doesn't feel gross to you because you're so used to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, everything about this opening totally connected to me in the sense of, you know, the kids watching, you can't do that on television. The dad's trying to do work, but they're all together. He's wrestling with a small bicycle outside of the, you know, it's like, it is the cumbersomeness of, of family and life. And even when they went out to the party for that, uh, the, uh, the samurai, whatever that was, the samurai exercise book. Um, yeah. That's where you see the eighties stuff. It's just like oh, gratuitous yes. elbows at Asian culture. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, it's such a, <laughs> such like a weird, like, I'm like, why this is really kind of like slightly racist, but also like, uh, like, Ooh, do you like sushi? Like, I feel like there are all these, like these, <laughs> I mean, it, it's funny to watch cause it feels so much like a parody of what you would see in like an eighties movie like this, but there, but even going to that party, like the way that Ann Archer feels and the way that he's like helping her feel more comfortable, but they are, and by the way, do they go to that party for Five minutes. I mean, it seems like the party is shot in real time and they go and leave within five minutes. 
I mean, I just wanted to say how much I want to go to that party. Like I was watching that party like, oh, to be in a crowded room of people and have you just be like eating sushi and whispering and making friends. I like knew that, that sushi was oh. not going to be good. I knew that sushi was going to be bad. I was looking at that and I was like, you know what? This is before they figured it out in New York sushi. This is like expensive, but not good. I, I didn't have any love loss for that sushi. A lot of sushi boats there. A lot of sushi boats there. A lot of tuna. Um, but Everybody's pounding champagne, man. Oh, it just looked like so much fun. Now, as well-rounded as this movie is, and I think it's painting a realistic picture, don't you think that this movie starts to take on a little bit of Michael Douglas's perspective? Like, it starts to feel like, oh, well, I mean, oh, poor Michael Douglas. Uh, like, he, like, there are a couple things in there that I feel like are being done to him, not done to the marriage, like, oh, the kid is sleeping in my bed. Oh, my wife wants to move to Connecticut. Oh, like, like these, like, these little itches that he wants scratched. Well, I think, I mean, kind of yes and no. I feel like there's a bit where you're like, oh, what a perfect life. Oh, he doesn't get this extra cherry. Okay, fine. But I think there's also this sense going on that, like, sex is dangerous. Like, there's not a lot of conversations we overhear at this party, but one of the ones we hear is this joke that a guy is in a neck brace because he was boning his wife? Hiya, Bob. How are you? Glad you could make it. Thank yeah. you. I'm sorry about the meeting tomorrow, but I know it's a Saturday, but we got a real crisis. Oh, no, no, I understand. You know my wife, Beth, Bob Drimmer? Oh, pleased to meet you. Nice to meet you. I hope you like sushi. Thank you. Oh, love it, Bob. Love it. What did he do to his neck? He was screwing his wife. Are you serious? Am I serious? No, absolutely. You should see his wife. Had to take her out on the stretch. Right, girl. <laughs> and again, his wife. So not even like, not even like, ooh, scandalous, you know. Uh, yeah, but, but there's this little bit of like, ooh, sex is dangerous. You don't know what could happen. And uh, there's, there's these tiny challenges that I find so smartly written. Like he sees Glenn close. He only goes over there to apologize to her a little bit because of his buddy being kind of strange and staring at her. And, you know, he's like, oh, my buddy is just a little insecure like the rest of us. And when she hears that his wife is summoning him, she just says that little line. She says, is that your wife? Better run along. It's a little patronizing, just a touch. It's a little bit of a challenge, but it's not like her grabbing his lapel and saying, I'll be your wife for the night. It's just a little bit of a jab, just the tiniest little elbow. Right. So in a way, though, it's these subtle things that kind of are building that says, hey, he's not at fault. Women are crazy and you got to be careful (laughs) because you know what? You think you know them and then they're going to screw you over again. Like, I feel like there's this energy that's going on. Yeah, man. Why doesn't she get it, man? She should just get it. Well, I think that this movie wants to posit this idea that women are dangerous. Like if like this movie does have a a strong through line, like, hey, you said to me, Glenn Close, I can be discreet. Why can't you be discreet? Like we agreed to this thing. You're not being cool about this. I'm being cool about this. And if that movie ended with that they had sex he would never have told his wife he would never have felt guilty about it and he would have moved like there the only reason why this i mean obviously the whole movie is about this woman uh losing her mind after this like one night or two night stand but like this idea that he is i just think it's so funny that we have a movie where it's like hey man she lost her mind. Like, I'm being cool. She should have been cool. Like, it almost makes me think, does Michael Douglas, like, do this a lot? Because there's a part of him that just seems like, 
I don't know what happened this time because the way that he moves into this relationship is crazy fast. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, okay, a couple of things. I think that if Michael Douglas, his character, was like narrating this movie to you, he exactly agrees with that point of view. But I think the movie disagrees. Okay. Affairs don't have excuses necessarily. That it's not like, oh man, boy, my wife sure henpecks me or whatever BS excuse people give. It's like, I could. I just could. And like right. that's his that's his greatest argument. Like at, you know, at one point Glenn Close is like, why would you do this? And he's like, he has absolutely no answer. What do you think? I was running wiser that all the interesting guys are always married. Well, maybe that's why you find them interesting, the fact you can't have them. How long have you been married? Nine years. Do you have any kids? Mm-hmm. Got a six-year-old girl. Sounds good. Yeah. I'm lucky. So what are you doing here? Boy, you're not asked them, aren't they? No, I really want to know. I had a wonderful time last night. I'd like to see you again. Is that so terrible? No. And that, I find that, I was going to say chilling, but in a way I don't find it chilling as much as I find it like human. Like humans just make weird mistakes without having any reason to do it, which is just as terrifying. And and because I think there's not a lot of calculation behind human gigantic screw ups. Yeah, I think you are right about that. I think, you know, we don't need to see him be completely beaten down and unhappy. I think it makes for a more interesting movie. But I also think that his attitude towards the entire thing, like, there is something so unremorseful about him that, like, this movie, while it goes to extreme lengths and it goes in in crazy places, obviously we'll get into all this stuff with Glenn Close, but the Michael Douglas character is pretty much viewed as the the hero and everything that's done to him seemingly is not his fault. I guess that's the thing that I was really looking at. Like, like he never really wrestles with the part that he played in this at all. Like, you don't even really see him g- g- give a full-throated, like, apology to Ann Archer or explanation to Ann Archer at all. Like, it just like, ugh, our wife wants to move to the country and our kid sleeps in our bed. I do need an affair. Like, you know, it's like, it's a very 80s, I guess what I'm saying is it's a very 80s attitude for like a man to kind of just be without any fault. I guess this is no fault. Am I saying the same thing over and over? You are, but I actually want to parse what you're saying because you're right. But I think that there's a chance that you're like kind of doubly right. Like you're right in that there's a way of watching Michael Douglas Almost like he is Rico from Starship Troopers and everything he says is right and you should believe him. And when he's like, be reasonable to Alex, like you should be totally reasonable that we like boned all weekend and just like, you knew the deal. This is how this works. Everything's Mm -hmm. fine. Jesus Christ. I mean, let's be reasonable. Be reasonable. (laughs) 
What? Thank you, goodbye, don't call me, I'll call you. Look, you knew about me, all right? I didn't hide anything. I thought it was understood. What was understood? The opportunity was there and we took it. Come on now, we're, uh, we are adults, aren't What's we? What's that supposed to mean? I thought we could have a good time. No, you didn't. You thought you'd have a good time. You didn't stop for a second to think about me. That's crazy. You knew the rules, Alex. What rules? Look, Alex. I like you. And if I wasn't with somebody else, then maybe I'd be with you. But I am. Please don't justify yourself as pathetic. If you'd tell me to fuck off, I'd have more respect for you. All right, then fuck off. And you get out! Like, I think the movie leaves space for us to watch him in that scene and be like, that guy's totally lying. What a selfish jerk. Like, that his arguments are just like, you, you know what the deal is. The deal is just that I get to have everything that I want and I get to bone you. And like, I... I don't think we're supposed to necessarily agree that he's right, but I think a lot of people watched this movie at the time and were like, poor Michael Douglas. Why isn't she just being reasonable? Glenn Close in this movie is amazing. You know, if you read anything about the film, you know that she was uh, not the first choice. Like, she was, uh, as Adrian Lyons said, the last person on earth who should play Alex. Like, why do you think that he is so put off by her? Because they're talking about people like Sharon Stone or Elizabeth Shue or, you know, uh, Gilda Radner or, you know, I mean, which is a little bit out of the box too, but Diana Ross. Like, I think they're they're... Focusing on people who have definitely this like aura of like uh, a seductress or something like that, like or or something like a younger person to kind of be pulling him out of that. But like, but they kind of cast somebody age appropriate, but they don't. I think originally they don't see her as right for this. Why do you think that that was? Well, I mean, a lot of that is just because Glenn Close had never played a sexy character before mm-hmm. on screen. Like, this is the character that wound up kind of changing her image. It's because she does this movie that then she does Dangerous Liaisons the next year after this, where she's like the queen of sexy, sexy sex. And, and But up until here, she'd just been in like World According to Garp. She'd worn a lot of nurses' outfits. Nobody had ever seen her play this kind of like flesh and blood human. But I think that casting, you know, an age-appropriate woman who, you know, has her own kind of like quirky personal look and isn't just like, you know, stamped beauty. Like, oh, yes, we all agree that this is just a pretty, pretty face. You know, I think that that adds so much to the film. I mean, if you put Elizabeth Shue in this movie, and this is not at all based on Elizabeth Shue as an actor at all, because Elizabeth Shue is, of course, super talented. But if you put like a younger woman in this part, I think there's a bit of the audience that goes, well, of course he isn't going to have an affair with that. Totally. And it almost takes away some of the tension of his choice. I think casting somebody who is like age appropriate is interesting because they can play more of a, a cat and mouse with each other. He doesn't have anything over her like, oh, I'm older. You don't get this. She's incredibly smart. So is he. And part of like the interesting thing of this movie is how smart she is. Like, she's just not... Um, unhinged, she's extremely calculating. 
And we see that in little moments and it gets more and more intense as it goes on. And I think that that's what makes her a scary character, right? Because I don't think we could see someone younger being as manipulative as she is. Or maybe that's my own perspective of it. But I feel like because they're on the same level in a way, there is a danger factor that that makes this movie a lot more scary. Well, I think that it makes them just more equal in mm-hmm. power. You know, she's not right. like a younger person who can be pushed around. And I think that it also adds something to, you know, to the plot point where she's pregnant, where he gets her pregnant. And, you know, to have but Glenn Close he, saying... But does he? Yeah, I think he does. I Really? really? Actually, yeah, he calls the doctor. The doctor confirms it. I don't know. I'm still suspicious. I mean, technically, according to, uh, you know, the uh, timeline of the movie, it wouldn't be possible. But I, I'll believe you that she's pregnant. I mean, I I'll, think I'll she is. It. And I think that since we're talking about the casting, that is where that comes into play. Like, for to have Glenn Close say, I'm 36 years old, this may be my last chance to have a child, that carries a lot more weight than if it was somebody in their early 20s, like Elizabeth Shue would have been. Because I think the audience would just sort of go, ah, you got a lot of life ahead of you. But when it's Glenn Close, you know, you're like, and and there's this idea, I mean, when you're 36 years old, they're already calling that like a geriatric pregnancy. Yeah, that ups the stakes. It's like a smart move that I think makes it even more tense. Yeah, but I I also feel like the way that it's positioned, I hear what you're saying, but that's not like, I don't think that that plays into the movie the way that you're saying it does. Like, I think it plays into the movie in a way to continually wrap him up and connect him. Like, she doesn't want to let him go, right? So she's finding all these things. Like, when she goes, I don't sleep around. I don't know if I should believe her or not. And I think that's the, that's this idea that I'm wrestling with with this entire movie, where it's a very male perspective of this movie. I don't care like ultimately, or I think the movie is telling us not to worry about her being a geriatric pregnancy. I think the movie is like, yeah, get an abortion. Like he doesn't even think twice about telling her to get an abortion. Like I, I think that this movie is very much on the side of Michael Douglas, not on the side of Glenn Close. And I think whenever she tells you anything, I don't take it at face value because we already learned a, a few moments before when Michael Douglas fakes his heart attack. By the way, I want to say, that sequence of them like dancing at a club, walking through the street, running around in the park. I mean, that's a incredibly really well, that's incredibly romantic sequence. And it's really interesting the way that Adrian Lyne shoots that in the sense that you really start to feel for the two of them in that moment. But when she fakes that lie that her dad died of a heart attack and she does it so straight faced, I from that moment on, I don't believe a word she says. Because she's using it to manipulate or she's using it to fuck with him. But wait, you're falling right into the trap of this movie. Because, like, why does she do that? Because he fucked with her first. He pretended to have a heart attack and he freaked her out. You can hear in this clip how scared she is that he that she thinks he actually had a heart attack during the park. Dan? 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 Dan, Dan, can you hear me? <laughs> you bastard. Your face, your face. <laughs> that was a shitty thing to do. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I was just fooling around. My father died of a heart attack. I was seven years old. It happened right in front of me. 
I'm sorry. Really, I had no idea if I did. I never would have done anything like that. <laughs> Wait, you see, he didn't die. He's alive. <laughs> yeah, he's alive and well and living in Phoenix. certainly got me, didn't you? I mean, he's, he starts it by scaring her. So I think it's but funny that you zoom in on the little... fact that she's lying to him when he lied first. And also, when he, like, breaks into her apartment first, he's the first one of these two people to break into the other person's apartment. He finds a news clip and realizes that her dad actually did die. That she actually was telling the truth when she said he died of a heart attack. She just walks it back because she feels like she killed the mood in front of him. Like that she tells him this truth. He obviously feels uncomfortable. And then she's like having a nice time on this date. So she like takes it back to make him feel better about the fact that he faked having a heart attack in the first place, which is a really fucked up thing to do. A hundred percent. Like I'm not on the side of Michael Douglas. I'm just saying that this movie definitely takes more of that point of view like no, I think wait, that, but yeah. I don't think it does I think that's okay. what's so fascinating because I think I think audiences for the most part saw it a lot the way that you do you okay. know because we're so used to just like thinking like well this is Michael Douglas this is Michael Douglas's story that when you watch this film actually the whole way through She's making just as many good points as he is. He is escalating it just as much as he is. I think if you stop this movie any time before the last 30 minutes, mm-hmm. he's more the villain than she is up until this point. A hundred percent. I agree with that. I think that he becomes, but the way that he goes at her is shocking. Like, look, it's tricky because, you know, she kidnaps his kid at a certain point in the film. Yeah, that's where, like, the kid and the bunny is where it goes too far for sure. But when she does, his instinct is to go to her house and violently choke her. Like, and there is, like, a moment there where I'm like, whoa, what the fuck? Like, I get it. Like, this woman took your child, but, like, to go to that extreme level of violence that quickly was, I don't know. I Like, it definitely sat uneasy with me because there were other avenues for him to go down at that point. But, like, he went there to... I mean, I know he realizes, oh, I shouldn't choke this woman out. But that is a fucking... Like, he goes nuts. Like, he goes legit nuts. And I think the movie wants you to be like, we're on his side. Like it's cool for him to do that because she did kidnap his kid for, you know, a day at Rye Playland. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I'm like, I'm like, are, as, is the audience supposed to watch it or the audience supposed to go, Oh, he's just as unhinged as her. I mean, I think this movie plays a trick on us, which is, I, I, I really, now that we're doing this, like, very close to Starship Troopers, I feel like this movie has so much in common with Starship Troopers in that, like, it kind of takes advantage of our natural inclination to sympathize with this dude, even as the movie the whole way through is having her make really good points. Like, that argument where she's like, I just want you to face your responsibility. So what can I get you? I've got scotch, I've got vodka, I've got some ice cream. Cut this shit, will you? Just cut it! I don't know what you're up to. 
But I'm going to tell you, it's going to stop right now. No, it's not going to stop. It's going to go on and on until you face up to your responsibilities. What responsibilities? I'm pregnant. I'm going to have our child. Alex, that's your choice, honey. That has nothing to do with me. I just want to be a part of your life. Oh, this is the way you do it, huh? Showing up at my apartment? Well, what am I supposed to do? You won't answer my calls. You change your number. I mean, I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. I mean, think about this. If you believe that she's pregnant, and I do, because that is like, that, like they believed that she was pregnant when they expanded the story, you know? Because like the first version of this diversion, the kind of short version that the screenwriter first wrote, you know, it, it was very different. Like it was only like about, it, it's you know, a little bit longer than half an hour. And in that movie, the husband is much more of a creep. Like, he actively calls a girl to have an affair when his wife leaves. You know, here, you can hear that here. It's funny. I had a feeling this would happen the moment I saw you at the party. Did you now? Didn't you? I didn't think about it. I don't scheme. Do you do this sort of thing often? What sort of thing? You know what I mean. What do you take me for? I think you do. You're very professional. Thanks. You make me sound like a male whore. No, I mean, it all went very smoothly, didn't it? A very slick seduction. Don't tell me you weren't a willing victim. I was dazzled by your charms. And then at the end of it, the movie just ends where the woman starts finally calling his house. And so, like, his punishment is just that he has to be freaked out every time the phone ring. You know, they use the phone in so much of the same way here. Like, this movie starts with him not even paying attention when the phone rings. He's got his headphones on. His little kid has to tell him. And by, like, halfway through the movie, every time the phone rings, it's like you're watching Scream. You're like, oh, no, the phone is ringing again. Who could be on the phone? It, it, this does not make me wish that I had landlines. But like what happens to this short film is that, you know, Sherry Lansing sees it. You know, Sherry Lansing, who would go on to be like the head of Paramount for 12 years, you know, really brilliant producer. And at that time, she is just, she is a producer. She's looking for projects. She sees this short film and she just keeps thinking about it because Sherry Lansing, this is before she gets married to William Friedkin. She was like, I'm this, you know, successful career woman. I feel like my life is pretty together. But being in the city and being a woman who goes on dates, like, it is awful out here. Like, one time Sherry Lansing tells this story that one of her friends sets her up on a blind date with this former basketball star. She goes on this date, and then, like, when he picks her up, the former basketball star is like, oh, by the way, I'm married. And she's just furious. She's, like, mad that this guy is married and taking her on a date. She's mad that her friend thought it was a normal thing to do to set her up on a blind date with a guy who was already married. But this was, like, the culture, and everybody was acting like that was just totally normal, and you're a career woman, and you should just be fine going on dates with married guys. And it really upset her. And then right after that, you know, she was dating somebody. She really liked him. And then while they were in bed one day, he just says, I don't think I love you anymore. And he just leaves. And she went into this like depression, you know, where she said for like two days, she couldn't leave the house. She would call him and then she'd hang up when he answered the phone and that she just kind of lost it. And she was like, man, I feel like I have it together but dating as a woman my age is making me insane. And so she sees this short film and she's like, you know, I identify with this woman. I identify with the other woman. I identify with Alex because like just trying to be a single woman in this city is really dehumanizing. And that's what makes her want to do this film is her sympathy for this character. 
I see that point of view, and I think that that's a really interesting point of view, but it doesn't seem to me like Glenn Close's character is like getting upset and it's growing. It really does seem to me like she has, there's some, there's a mental illness going on here. Like this is not like, like what you're seeing from her throughout this movie is there is something much stronger going on underneath the surface, right? And that I think is also something that confuses it, makes her more of the villain. If she was more like Sherry Lansing, somebody who maybe went off the deep end or made a couple of uh, mistakes because she got caught up in something, that to me is a little bit more compelling. Here, we're talking about somebody who truly has, you know, a mental health issue. I mean, Glenn Close takes a script to two different psychiatrists and goes, is this possible? And the psychiatrist uh, said like, well, I think that, you know, she's been molested and sexually tortured for an extended period of time when she was a child. And as a result, like this emotional pain that she might experience is associated with that sex would provoke this violent response. And people start talking about this idea of like this uh, uh, erotomania, which is a psychiatric syndrome, which is a delusional belief that somebody's maybe out of your league. Like they, this is not... Like she is mentally unstable. And I think this movie really leans into that instability, not like uh, what you might do in a situation like this, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think where I struggle with this movie is I think when I watch it, to me, there are like three different stages of Glenn Close and they don't all add up to me together. Right. Like to me, Glenn Close in the first hour, you have an affair with a guy, he, you get pregnant he changes his phone number. Like, that's awful. Like, you know, she deserves to be angry at that point. Glenn well, Close but, to but like, I mean, I also want to bring up the point that, like, she's the one who says, can we be discreet, right? It was, it was like a one-night affair, right? It was a, a moment. I do believe that there is something about what she's saying versus... You know, even the Sherry Lansing story is very different. Like, this is a one-night thing that she can't get over, right? Oh, That's well, what the, I mean, if he was going to be discreet, he should have worn a condom. Just, like, to be be true. discreet with yes, your body, yes, too, man. Yeah, like, of course, be a thousand percent I'm not discreet. saying that he should not, yes. I'm not, I'm not, like, on the side of Michael Douglas. I'm just saying, but there are some things here that this is a heightened situation, right? This well, is not right. a, yeah. But, well, I mean, okay, I think that Michael Douglas is shown to be confusing and culpable in a lot of this. Because, like, think about this. You know, yes, she does definitely have some mental health issues that I want to, like, have Glenn Close. I'll, I have a clip that I want to play from her in a second. Oh, great. More from about that, that, yes, yeah. But, like, but I kind of want to make this point first. You know, like, they have this weekend together. I think there is some sort of irony in the fact that, like, he leaves his wife's spaghetti in the fridge but eats, like, you know, exactly the same spaghetti over at her house. You know, it's just like this trading of meals for no reason at all. Everybody in his life makes spaghetti. Like he's, it, it's like this idea of like, really the meal is no different even at this other woman's house. You're doing it just to do it. They have that talk, like while she's making dinner about Madam Butterfly. And I feel like this is the key scene, not just because, you know, in the way that he describes Madam Butterfly in the plot that we'll hear here, like not only because that is so much of like what she's emulating, but because there's this little moment in this scene where he says, you know, he starts to talk about his dad and you watch her face when he talks about his dad. And what I think you see in Glenn Close's face in the scene is, oh, 
he had a really tough time as a child too, just like I did. I didn't tell him the truth about my dad because it was an awkward moment because he was faking a heart attack and I didn't want to bum him out and say like how awful my life was with my dad. But like, if he's a damaged child and I'm a damaged child, I feel like now we connect. I think like in this story, that's when you see her actually start to take him more seriously and care about him. Anything else for me to do? No, nothing. Just make yourself at home. You can change the tape if you want to. Oh, no, this is great. I love Madam Butterfly. Really? It's my favorite opera. Mine too. It's the first opera I ever saw. My father, he took me to the old Met. I was five years old. Did it pay gas then? Well, I got most of it. There was this U.S. sailor setting up house with this Japanese lady. That was all fine. But in the final act, after he left her, my father told me she's going to kill herself. And I was terrified. I was... I climbed right underneath the chair. It's right here. This is it, it's right. It's funny. What? That's one of the only times I remember my father being nice to me when I was a kid. Comforting me at Madame Butterfly. I don't know. There's something in her eye in that scene that I'm like, oh, that's when Alex actually starts to fall for Dan and think that maybe this could be something serious because they're like revealing personal things to each other. But that's like also the, the preceded by him saying, I have a wife, I'm happy. That that scene that we talked about earlier, like, well, then why are you here? Well, yeah, like, but, th- but think about his behavior here because like Michael Douglas is being... I think he is being low-key pretty unhinged. He is like, I have a wife, I have to leave. Oh, but let's get in bed one more time. Like he can't, he doesn't end it. He goes back into bed with her, even after he says that. Which if you are an unstable person, it feels like he's changing his mind too. It makes you think that his mind is malleable, that maybe he hasn't made his mind up about it, right? So then she slits her wrists and I'm kind of on the fence of like, you know, it, you know, she slits her wrists the opposite way. And I'm no, I'm always like, does she slit her list wrist the opposite way because it's the 80s and they don't want to show her doing it the real way? Or is it just an attention slitting? It's kind of hard to tell. But like... But at that moment, I think you pull the rug out from this character. Because at that moment, you say that she is mentally unstable. And now everything that he does is... Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like... Everything he does is less of an offense to her because she is, you know, she clearly has an issue. Like she slits her wrists to make him stay one more night and then he stays one more night and then she blames him for staying two nights. And then like... Um, but, but think about what he's still doing though. He is being, he's treating her like a wife. Like he keeps calling her honey in these scenes. Like Michael Douglas is upping the intimacy. He keeps trying to say like, no, 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 there's rules. But when you watch the way he treats her, he is not obeying his own rules. And it's really confusing her. And I just want to point out his own culpability in this. Like the next time they see each other after the wrist slitting, she shows up at his office. She apologizes to him. She's like, and she says exactly what we're saying. Like, I have some mental health issues. I kind of had a little bit of a break here. At the end of this meeting, 
she offers her hand to him. She's like, tries to give him a handshake. And he goes in for a hug. And he kisses her on the cheek. And that is him kind of, kind of like, he's not doing it on purpose to manipulate her. But she's trying to actually, like, agree to his boundaries. And he's the one who I think is, like, screwing her up a little bit and making her think there is maybe more hope. I see what you're saying. And I get that. But... It kind of makes everything null and void because she is dealing with these mental health issues because everything that he does, like, is going to affect her worse, right? Like, it's like, I think there's a more interesting story if she unravels a little bit later instead of so early. I guess maybe, you know, he is rightly afraid of this woman who slits her wrists on the second, like... On the morning after, you know, or this like night of, you know, this this night where they have this like, you know, full blown blowjob and uh, freight elevator uh, night, you know, it's like, I guess to me, I'm just saying like, he's like, I'm out. I don't want to be a part of this. I need to get away from this, right? And I guess what you're saying is. You don't like that he's pulling away that much, but I think he's also trying to be kind, but he maybe doesn't know any more intimacy than how he knows with his wife. It's a tricky situation because, like, I understand, like, I want no part of this. Like, she is, this is not right. And, but again, you know, it's it's tricky. It's, like, I think well, this movie I'm just trying to see line. it through her point of view. Like, if you're yeah. unstable, you know, if you are unstable, like, his kind of wishy-washiness in these, like, really early pivotal scenes are why she thinks there's still a chance. Like, I'm just trying to point out how she could interpret the but way that also he's you're, but you're, But you're leaving out some other parts, too, right? Where he says, I'm happy, I have a wife, I'm, I have a great kid. And she's like, well, why are you here? She's not really hearing him. And he goes, I have to go home. I got to well, go do he, work. It's because he doesn't have an answer for why is he here. Like, I mean, I'm not trying to say, like, Glenn Close is absolutely right about all of this at all. I'm just trying to say how bad he is at having an affair. And then like, he just thinks he could kind of lean on the script of like, yes, I think you're right. He's just very, he's very bad at this. I I think you're so right. Cause I think what I'm, what going back to that, what I described earlier, when they show the intimacy of them dancing in the club, going to the park with the dog, that is to me, him substituting his wife for her like he's kind of like he's rekindling the fun of not being a dad what it was like to be in new york city at that point with his wife like he is immediately putting her in there and i think that that is you're right that's bad having an affair that's a bad uh you know that's not discreet that's not a one night stand that's not i leave in the middle of the night kind of a thing so i think you're right i think that there is that scene and those moments are in there for that reason well, yeah, I mean, that's why I think like it can get a little bit repetitive that she keeps saying, like, don't I make sense? Don't I make sense? You know, like she does on the tape right here. Hello, Dan. Are you surprised? This is what you've reduced me to. I guess you thought you'd get away with it. Well, you can't. Because <laughs> part of you is growing inside of me, and that's a fact, Dan, and you'd better start learning how to deal with it. (laughs) Because, you know, I I feel you. I taste you. I think you. I touch you. 
But honestly, as much as Glenn Close keeps repeating, like, doesn't part of what I'm saying make any sense to you that you are treating me like garbage and that I am pregnant with your child? No matter how many times she says that, it's weird that it doesn't kind of stick, I think, in the movie for the audience. I mean, I think part of what you're talking about is like when you just take these two characters and put them next to each other, when you just take Dan and put him next to Alex, Alex is just so much more memorable and like vibrant and alive than she is. So it's like everything she does just like really pops. And you forget that he breaks into her house first, man. He breaks into her house first. And like, why? To like snoop around and see if she's really pregnant. He goes through her medicine cabinets. Like if that was reversed, if she did that to his house first, you'd be like, what a crazy person. But somehow he does it and nobody, everybody's like, I'm sure he'll find something. What a bad woman she probably is. Right. I agree with that. What does he find? He finds a pregnancy test. He finds pregnancy tests. Like, and yet, I, I don't know. I think it's such a fascinating trick that we like keep letting him off the hook. I think the movie is saying she didn't play by the rules that he created. And like, well, she did say the indiscretion thing. Right. But also he feels like the rules are all, you know, the rules are all in his favor. I think the movie says that the rules are all in his favor and it points that out. Like, do you think that that he also, do you think that he also wants to go after her because he shoots down his friend? Like, he's like, oh, you know what? Like, I could bet I can get her. Like, I mean, like, there is there an element there that, like, like it's just even like a not that he's in competition with Stuart Pankin, but like that there is like a little bit of a like, oh, I bet you I could get her if she couldn't get like I mean, I wondered if that was part I, of it. I too. think it is. I think like I think that turns him on. I think it turns him on that she broke up another dinner date to be with him. I think it like it really flatters his ego. Because also what we have in that scene is like, you know, he can't get the waiter's attention. He's like trying to order them more coffee or something. And he's like, has to make a joke about it. Like, oh, I have a lot of pull in this restaurant because nobody's paying attention to him. But she is. And I think like that really flatters him. But I also think he is kind of, I mean, maybe this is just me having a problem, like telling most Michael Douglas characters apart anyway. Like I feel the same way about him that people do about Tom Cruise, where like all their characters are kind of the same. I'm like Michael Douglas in Wall Street, in Basic Instinct, in Disclosure, I can't really tell that much of a difference between any of them. Well, Michael Douglas is always a man who's getting involved in like these extremely sexual situations that kind of get out of hand. I mean, that was like, yeah. I don't know if this is the movie, you know, and look, and Wall Street tells a story, you know, I think Wall Street, and that's Oliver Stone, is obviously showing the downfall of, uh, you know, yeah. of living this kind of lifestyle. This movie, well, he's I a man think who's very entitled. much. Yeah. He's like a man who's entitled. He plays characters who are entitled to have everything they want. Right. Right. And then, and, and, and. You're right. A hundred percent right. And I think that that's, but I think that this is, this movie is really interesting because 
I think it was intended to be like, uh, there's a reason why I think a lot of directors passed on this movie. And I think there are these themes here. And I think that Adrian Lyne is making this movie because I think he sees this idea of, uh, not, I'm not saying he's a titan of industry, but a successful, happy man falling into the situation and then it kind of like destroying his life. Like that's a very interesting story to tell, right? It's like, and you want to feel sympathy for this person. You can't like, we're, we're actively following him. Like she is the villain. That's why she's a villain. That's why we're doing this on this series. She is the villain. Like the movie centers it that way. We can look at it from a different perspective and go, oh, maybe she's not the villain. But the way that we're telling this story is she is the villain. Well, to that point, like when Sherry Lansing was trying to get this made, you know, and all these directors kept saying no, even the Paramount head of production, like Don Steele, when she read the script, she was so mad at it that she threw it across the room. Like the first director that finally Sherry Lansing got to say yes was Brian De Palma. And Brian De Palma was like, yeah, but I have absolutely no sympathy for the Alex character, which upset Sherry Lansing, which she was like, oh, maybe we can make this work. I do really want to make this film. I have to make this film. But then Brian De Palma went too far and he said, I want to recast Michael Douglas because Michael Douglas I, is not sympathetic enough. He wanted to cast somebody even more sympathetic that like you'd see this husband and be like, oh, clearly he's in the right. And this is where Sherry Lansing finally put her foot down. She's like, no, you can't make this character that sympathetic. So from the beginning, I think they've really been trying to balance this out, you know? And so, right. so and like, do you think that it's just Michael Douglas being Michael Douglas that we already are on his side? No, I think that's exactly it. She's trying not to make it on the side. I just think there's something in us as audiences that can't keep it straight that we're not supposed to sympathize with him. Even though the movie, I don't think the movie does sympathize with him. I think if it was really trying to just kind of like pull the wool over eyes and tell it through his point of view, you wouldn't have him rampaging through her apartment. You wouldn't have him be the one who like pulls her in for a kiss. They keep. I think it's just such a test. It keeps trying to tell us what's happening in this film. And it's funny that it's hard to register. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that this is a, unlike Starship Troopers, I think this is a little bit more of a muddled story. I think it is, it's complex in what you, in what you want it to tell, because I think the more interesting version of this story is more what Sherry Lansing is talking about. You, you, you lose your sense of self sometimes when you get into a relationship and it makes you act in different ways. And then if you heighten it up, so by the end, she's boiling the bunny, although the bunny had nothing, nothing to do. And that was just a child's bunny. Why do we have to do that? But like that's- And that scene is so awful. The way they're like, I mean, this film got nominated for best editing. And like, that's definitely one of the scenes with like cutting between the pot and the daughter and the pot and the daughter and that horrible scream. Another great editing scene is when he's listening to the tape, when she gives him the tape and they're cutting between her and her car and him and his car. I think what this oh, movie oh, does. Oh. And, and the roller oh. coaster one where like, oh, I mean, yeah. where she kidnaps the daughter and like she's in the roller coaster. Glenn Close is climbing up to the top. And meanwhile, Ann Archer is like freaking out, driving everywhere. That editing is nuts. I love it.
this movie is really well directed. I think where it loses the sympathy for the Alex character is we stop seeing Alex in any way besides being completely um, connected to the Michael Douglas character. Like Michael Douglas is still going about his business in his daily life. Like it seems like Alex drops out of the world. Like we understand her to be a professional, uh, a professional person. She has a lot of responsibilities and we never see her in that role again. And I actually think in in many ways that hurts because it's all of a sudden she just becomes this boogeyman, like, you know, like, uh, or boogeywoman. Uh, I totally you know. agree with that. Like, we don't see her have any friends. We don't see her have, like, any sort of normal life. We like, just even the way that they, like, as... frame her apartment is crazy. Like, it's like you literally have to go through the seventh circle of hell to get to her apartment. You have to walk through all of this, like, raw meat and trash can fires. I mean, it looks like hell getting to her apartment. Right. Every, everything around her is, like, flames and meat. It's like, it's like Blade. And, and there's something, there is something about it that I think devalues her character because then we only see her as someone, like, I would even have a, like, if we could see her in a moment in life, but it, everything that we see her do is directly related to him. Like, and then maybe that's obsession. Maybe that is she, everything else falls apart for her. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, because, to me, I think like the worst part of the character is not that she's mad at him. It's that she still likes him, right? Yes. Like yeah. she should... At any given point, she even up until the end, she wants to be with him. She thinks she can be with him. No matter what, even after the choking, she believes that it's still possible. Yeah, and that's the part that I don't totally buy. Well, but I guess I that's, that's the think... part that Glenn Close was really wrestling with when she tried to like add a psychological layer to it. I mean, the scene that she really points out is the scene that like opened up the character for her. I thought it was really interesting. What is fascinating to be challenged by a part like Alex Forrest is what happened? What went wrong? But you never know that. I mean, she's a character that never has the opportunity for the audience to actually understand what is making her tick. So these are all secrets. And you see a little bit of that thing, that strange thing about her father. One time she says that he's dead and she says that he's alive and You know, why does she throw up in the bushes when she's spying on the family? And all those things, you know, made me actually love her very much and realize that rather than a psychopathic villain, she was somebody out of control in great need of help. Because, yeah, like, I think when you think about, like, the key moments of this movie, you don't think about, like, Glenn Close seeing the little kid and then vomiting into a bush. But to Glenn Close, like, that was it. Like, if this woman has such a visceral reaction to seeing, like, a family man in this environment, what is her relationship to her dad that that would make her puke? And to her, right. that's where like it all kind of cracked open. Like what happened to this woman and what is this like triggering for her? I, yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, Glenn Close, by the way, I hope in no way are we devaluing her performance here because it is a amazing performance. And so like it, like I think we've talked a lot about like her actions, but the way that she acts in this movie in the way that, you know, she can be sweet and then vicious and then kind. And then, uh, you know, like she really is turning on a dime and it's phenomenal. Like it's it's a phenomenal performance. We're talking, we're talking a lot about like, is this getting across the point? But what she's doing here is amazing. I mean, it truly is an amazing performance. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole reason we're trying so hard to make sense of this character is because Glenn Close is so good. She makes you think 
this character has to make sense at some level, right? Like if this yes. was played by, no offense, I'm sorry, Denise Richards, we'd be like, well, this is just some ridiculous film. But well, Glenn Close it, yeah, is like, think, no, this woman has to somehow make sense, doesn't she? Doesn't she? And it make it kind of makes you crazy trying to figure it out. Well, because I think in a weird way, you know, this idea of like not wanting to cast her because she wasn't sexy is actually what makes the movie so interesting because I think that she's able to play sexy, not sexy, childlike, uh, evil. Like she really is like, it's almost like you don't know which side to get. Like she has so many faces, but I guess I, what I love about Glenn Close is she takes a script to the psychiatrist, but then in 2013, she's like, I would have rethought this performance because in reading the script, I never, it never occurred to me that there was a mental disorder here, you know, because I think that she, I think that she does feel like the film's popularity may have like contributed to uh, a mental health stigma. But it's interesting that she looked at it more of this character was abused, so she's acting out. Not this character has a mental health issue. Yeah, that's maybe that, one of the, I think like the big shifts just in our culture is like. The psychiatrist she took she, she took it to all solid in terms of trauma and abuse, and they didn't see it in terms of like extreme borderline personality, which right. is now I, like what people would see it as first. And I mean, Glenn Close, to her credit, has like done a lot of you know activism work within the mental health community. I think because this character has been so closely tied to it. But the well, fact I, that nobody yeah. even thought about that at the time just shows like what a shift we've had in the culture. And that's why I think that this movie is a little bit lopsided because I don't know if you can make this movie without having a certain perspective on it because I think it, without that like idea, you know, behind it, it becomes, she becomes a little bit of a harder character to pin down, right? It's like she becomes a villain, a violent villain. Like, you know, no one ever says like, oh, well, this is, you know, it it almost is like, man, women are crazy. Yeah, like, and I think that's that's some of the issue. It's not like somebody, no one in his life even says like, I think that, you know, it's not that you just had uh, great sex. I think that there's something wrong. Like, you know, no one ever goes there. No one ever thinks about that. Like, no, you know, it's like, maybe it's hard to make a movie like that at this point because no one has those tools. I mean, if the actress playing it doesn't even have that tool, you know, everyone's playing it in these different ways and it's being directed in a different way. So I think it does make it for a more muddled uh, message, not no, portrayal, right. but it's a more muddled message of what we're trying to see here. And, that, and that's that's what I'm wrestling with, because the movie on its surface is directed beautifully. I think the performances are great. I think you're right about Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas is Michael Douglas. I, I think that, you know, Yes, he's shooting Wall Street, but that character is is different. But, you know, Michael Douglas has an energy here that I think is very aspirational to men in the 80s, right? I think that there's like, oh, yeah, I'm like, I'm like Michael Douglas. You know, this could happen to me. I think that's what makes this movie really scary, too, because it's like, oh, my God, I could wreck my life in many, ra- many yeah. ways. I mean, Glenn, Glenn Close says this. Like, people come up to her and say, thank you for saving my marriage. Because I think men are like, you know what? I'm not going to have an affair because, my God, what could happen? Like, you know, it's like it is like a, it's it's the biggest warning like not to have an affair it's like oh i should just be happy with what i have and there's something about this you know question of attractiveness you know that kind of cuts both ways like michael douglas is not you know dolph lundgren himself either right Right. so it's like dolph lundgren as the uh prime example of attractiveness i mean honestly like 80s dolph lundgren yes 80s oh my god like have you have you ever spent any time um like googling pictures of him and uh grace jones no, I've never spent time doing that. Oh, most beautiful couple on the planet that has ever existed. 
I, I, I mean, um, I'm all into it. You know, it's like I'm, I'm wrestling with this idea. I don't know. I, you know, it's interesting when you have an actor that you like. It's they always are going to bring a, a sympathetic nature to it, right? Like I, I think one of the problems with that Denzel Washington movie where he's the pilot, the drunk pilot, is. I know it's a tour de force performance, but at the same time, we're bringing some Denzel Washington baggage with us, you know, and it's hard, I think, to when you're a movie star to not carry over the like of this character. It's like, oh, this is my friend. I'm going to go see my friend in this movie, you know, and I think that that's part of why people are movie stars, you know. um, Totally. But I guess that's funny because I don't feel that way about Michael Douglas. Like, I think that he is relatable because I think he has a lot of. I think on screen, he feels like he has a lot of the same uncomfortable flaws that most of us do. Mm -hmm. Like he is on screen. He seems selfish. He doesn't ever seem like better than life. He seems like, oh, yeah, my soul probably looks a lot like Michael Douglas. It's fine. But it's like, you know, a little creepy. There's probably some parts of me that I don't want the world to know. He's not like a he doesn't ever seem like perfectly heroic and like marvelous on screen. No, but I think it's like, but I do think that there's an aspirational uh, element to him that is like, I think guys in the 80s want to be him. And I think that's that's coming from like romancing the stone. I think that that, you know, like, by the way, that's what people have known him for before this, really, like truly before this, like his big movie that he's coming off of is Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile, where he's basically playing like a, a lovable Indiana Jones kind of roguey character, you know, and and then it's Fatal Attraction. And then after that, we get Wall Street, Black Rain, War of the Roses, Basic Instinct. You know, but before that, it's it really is like where he is a giant star is in these. He's a lovable like he's a rogue. He He's Han Solo, you know, and that like that to me, you bring that character in. We're going to like that character more, I think. But I like that you like him for being a rogue. I think that that's key. Yeah, I I do think that that's key, but I think it's like it, but like Han Solo, like we like Han Solo. We want him to get with Princess Leia, right? Like, but it's like, you know, I think you do. And and, and I think like, and if it was Harrison Ford in this movie. You'd like him even more, right? A uh, hundred. Uh, I think you would like them equally. I think. Really? I, I think, oh, I, I think if it was Harrison Ford, you'd be like, "Poor Harrison Ford, don't hurt a, a little hair on his head." But you know what? But you know what it is. I think we are looking at Michael Douglas post this movie. It's very hard for us to look at Michael Douglas. I, I can't look at Michael Douglas without thinking of Wall Street. Or, you know, for me, like Black Rain, Disclosure, like all these, the game, like he's made a career of playing this character over and over again. But this is very much the first time that America is seeing him in a giant hit as this character. Like it's, we're looking at it differently. I really do believe that. Like, I think we have to go back to 1987 and this is, you know, this comes out before Wall Street. I mean, that's like fair. This, like, I think you know, my first Michael Douglas is falling down. So I have no, I mean, yeah, my Michael Douglas like, is all over the place. Mine is too. Like, I mean, I'm all over the, I'm all over the spot, but I, I think, but you have to, you have to understand that Romancing the Stone is so big. They make a sequel right out of the gate. Like, you know, so he is, he is, 
I don't know. I think he's uh, he's Han Solo. Like, and then we see Han Solo in this. I think you're gonna react the same way. I think you are like he's sexy, he's fun, he's you know he's got it all together. We, I think he's made a career in making these movies that feel like this movie over and over again. Uh, so that's interesting. I just want to pull that out, like in the sense of that at that point, I still think we're we like him more than we would like him now. If he played it now or he played it after, like we would, we'd see it differently, I think. You know, it's never occurred to me to ever take it seriously that people would think that Michael Douglas is sexy. That's just absolutely never occurred to oh, me. Wow. I've always thought it was like, he plays sexy on screen kind of ironically. I know, it, I like, That's like oh, it's hilarious that Demi Moore would try to ruin her entire world for him. I don't understand why. Like, I always thought that was part of a joke. I guess it never occurred to me to take it seriously. Yeah, I think, you know, I think he's got a definite, like, sex appeal. Uh, but again, you know, it, it's... I mean, he's I, married I to Catherine Zeta-Jones. I mean, he had this actually happen to him in real life. There was a woman who threatened to, like, cut up Catherine Zeta-Jones and feed her to dogs because she thought they, like, they were, I mean, they were and, secretly and I mean, in love. I, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to, like, uh, belittle this at all, but, I mean, didn't he also say, like, you know, he got throat cancer because he went down on women? Like, I mean, like, he definitely is putting that out there. <laughs> Man, I mean, was like, did this movie make him sexy? And then that happened, and was yes, that that's his... what I'm saying. That's like, that just sex really scenes, confusing. Like these sex me. scenes in these movies, like, and that's the other thing we haven't talked about too. Like the sex scene in this movie and the sex scenes that are there, like these are hot scenes. Like these are, and and this is, and I think that we saw him and um, you know Kathleen Turner have like this, you know, this chemistry together. But this is like, you know, this is a very intensely like. You know, you're watching like very graphic stuff. It seems like this is all be shit that you would watch on FX now. So, but you can't take, you know, and, and you know, um, it's interesting because the sex is very uh, sexy, but the nudity is not. Like when she, when Kath, uh, when, um, when she's just Glenn naked Close in bed naked. with her, yeah. with her, yeah, it's just sort of like here are my boobs. There's like a kind of, there's a naturalness to it that I think is really cool. But yeah. when they're like first doing it in the kitchen, I love that little bit where he's like, they're, the dishes are everywhere and he's trying to like carry her around the room and he's like tripped up in his pants. Like all of that. It's just, I'm going to say it 90 times. It's just like Lynn's eye for the things that make this feel like it really happened to a real person right. is just amazing. I mean, and well, Sherry yeah. Lansing talks about this, that it was actually Michael Douglas's idea that like he would get tangled up in his own pants. And Adrian then was like, we need that because this is our first hardcore sex scene. And if audiences feel uncomfortable watching it, they're going to start giggling. But if we give them something to giggle at, they'll laugh at that part of it, but then still think the scene itself is sexy. And that was his kind of jujitsu idea was like so that people didn't laugh at the scene. They laughed with the scene. I like that. I like that idea a lot. Now, I know before this movie comes out, there are other very sexual films like Blue Velvet and Body Heat and Nine and a Half Weeks, uh, even Body Double. But this one kind of feels like the one that you would go on a date to go see, if that makes sense, right? And maybe in a way, like these sex scenes pop even more because they they are pedestrian, like you're saying, like they are getting tangled up in pants. It's not about like, you know, uh, Kim Basinger and Mickey Rourke, you know, putting ice on their nipples and in, uh, in front of a refrigerator. Like this is like, it's sex within a world and an apartment. It's like, it's, it's yes, they're doing it in a freight elevator too, but there's something about it that's a little bit more like close to home. Yeah, it, it's, it's not like, affair. Lin- it's Madonna like Madonna yeah. 
like making Willem Dafoe go down on her in a pile of broken glass on top of a car. Right. Yeah. It's like, like I, I, oh yeah, we could have sex by my dirty dishes. That's and I thing. think that there's something about this this kind of erotic thriller, this sexy thriller where it's like, oh, this is for the this is for this is a date night movie. Like, and then, then I think after this movie comes out, then you see a lot more of I that. wonder if like there's any more. like married couples out there who this was their first date. I wonder if there's any like people alive who are alive right now because their parents saw this on their first date and then got married and then had them. Yeah. There's got to be somebody, right? I mean, I look, I always, always. <laughs> I mean, I suppose every movie is some couple's first date movie. Like probably every yeah. one of us is alive because some couple had a first date to some weird movie. I mean, well, I mean, the, the, there's probably not a movie on this earth that hasn't been some couple's first date and they stayed together. Is that a normal thing to say? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's fine, right? They could stay together after this movie. I don't think this movie would break up a couple. Yeah. Huh. I mean, I, I'm just I'm just kind of struck. I like the idea that there's some couple out there and their first date was Tommy Boy. Like, that's just really sweet. Yeah. Or their first date was Fatal Instinct. I would uh, if there I would love there to be. I want to know the couple who their first date was Fatal Instinct and they're still together. <laughs> well, write us in. Tell us what's going on. Sorry, I don't know. I'm like, I, I just suddenly find that really romantic. Um, yeah. Do you remember the first movie you saw with June? Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. Um, so I really wanted to go see Million Dollar Baby. Uh, and in <laughs> retrospect, I'm so glad that we did not see it. Uh, and June really wanted to go see this movie called Love Song for Bobby Long. Uh, and we went to go see Love Song for Bobby Long. And that's a John Travolta uh, film with Scarlett Johansson that is just purely awful. And what was so great about it was the movie was so bad that we were sitting next to each other and we were able to like kind of joke and enjoy how bad the movie was. And I think that was a more fun experience for us uh, as like a date. Cause it's always weird to be like, let's go on a date to go see a movie. Cause we're going to now sit next to each other and not talk for two hours. So we actually connected with that movie, it gave us something more to deal with than my God, it would have been so rough to walk out of that Clint Eastwood movie. It would have been. Yeah. Like, what would have happened if your first date had been like, Watching, you know, Hillary Swank in a coma for an hour, biting off her own tongue and trying to die. <laughs> like, but I mean, would y'all still be together? Uh, God knows. God knows. Oh, I'm so glad you didn't go see that movie. <laughs> uh, me too. I mean, I, I, I often think that that was a, a real blessing in disguise that June really fought for a love song for Bobby Long. Uh, and John, that's John Travolta doing full Southern and everything. Uh, I, think, I think you should write John Travolta and tell him that that, that, that movie is actually like why you're a happily married couple. Like, I, like, I will. I think I'll you should. I'll tell him at the next Scientology meeting. <laughs> but anyways, we should talk about like why I think this movie does leave a bad taste in my mouth, in your mouth, which is and this ending. This, I mean, because if we're talking about like having a hard time holding on a grip to, to this character of Alex the whole way through... At the ending, I think this character really goes off the rail. I mean, like, she's acting disturbed in ways that don't even make sense for this character. She's like, why are you in my house or something? Like, what's going on? She yeah. seems, like, full-on delusional in this, like, last bathroom attack scene in a way that I think does not connect to anything in this character. Don't you think I understand what you're doing? You're trying to move him, move him into the country, and you're keeping him away from me. And you're playing... Happy family. But you wouldn't understand that because you're so selfish. Because <laughs> he told me about you. He told me about you. He was very 
honest. This ending is kind of nuts. And I think, you know, a lot of the times the ending of the movie shades the whole way that you look at the film, right? Like people say, like, if you give them a great 15 minutes at the end, they'll think the movie was great at the end. But I think in this film... Yeah, just like Doctor Strange 2. I think in this film, you walk out and go, oh my gosh, Michael Douglas is in the right. This was a total, like, it changes the way that you look at this movie. I really do believe that this movie firmly puts Michael Douglas in the hero role. I think it uh, it changes Anne Archer. I think it, it changes everything. Yeah, he gets and, off the hook because she goes so violent. Even though he yeah. did just already strangle her. She threatens to hurt Ann Archer. It's like when she finally is like pointing the knife, even at the most innocent, lovely person in the movie, then you're like, okay, 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 that's it. Yeah, and I think what was mind-blowing to me was this wasn't the end of the movie. Like, that, and this, this wasn't the end of the movie. The original ending of the movie, I think much more goes in line with what you and I have just been talking about. And I think the end of this movie really fucks it all up. Yeah, the end of the movie was supposed to be kind of like Madame Butterfly, where, you know, it it started at the scene where he like shows up at her house and he's strangling her. He's strangling her. They put the knife down. He backs out. She's looking at the knife. She's looking at him. She's got that weird smile. The ending of this movie, the real one that they actually shot, was after he leaves, she takes the knife and she slits her own throat. And then he gets arrested for her murder. You can hear a little bit of that here. I didn't do it. In that case, all we have to do is check your fingerprints against the murder weapon. There's some kind of misunderstanding. I want you to call Arthur right away, okay? Mr. Gallagher. I'll be right there, all right? Just a minute. His number's upstairs in my book. Tell him what's happened, and then I Mr. need Gallagher, it. Gallagher, really hot. Alex Forrest is dead. I'm sorry, your husband's under arrest. Wait just a goddamn minute. How would you go back? You go back in the house right, right honey, now. Honey, just please do what I said. Do what I said, all right? Call Arthur. Oh, Please stand back from the car, lady. Please. The dark version of this, the version that was in the actual script, was that he gets executed for her murder, you know, because Whoa. his fingerprints are on that knife. That was the actual one in the script. Then they softened it. And they had Ann Archer be like panicked that he gets arrested. She finds the tape. She finds Glenn Close on the tape saying she's going to kill herself. And she rushes out the door at the tape. And the implication is she can use this tape to get him out of jail. But you don't see him get freed. But that was like the hopeful ending. But then they took this ending out to like a bunch of test screenings. And they're like, cool, it's our movie. We got it. And the test screenings were only okay. It was getting like a 75% approval rating, which is fine. But it wasn't what Sherry Lansing was hoping for. What they noticed in these test screenings is every single time it got to this scene in the movie right here. This is Beth Gallagher. If you ever come near my family again, I'll kill you. You understand? The audience would burst into applause and they realized, oh man, the audience really, really, really needs Ann Archer to kill Glenn Close. They have to have, and they just want Ann Archer to kill Glenn Close. And I can't believe that this has now happened for three movies in a row on accident. That basically at the end of the film, a test screening was like, we need that woman to die. Man, well, test audiences are bloodthirsty. Well, I mean, test audiences, they're tricky. But I mean, I think 
what happens here is like they feel like Michael Douglas is sympathetic and he was affected by this woman and like they don't see the other side of it, right? Like like so much so that I almost feel like this new ending not only, you know, not only do we kill Alex, we make her incredibly crazy, but then we we also have like Ann Archer being like, it's okay. I'm going to kill her for you. So I'm almost absolving you from cheating on me. It's like, it's almost like everything comes together because Michael Douglas has been kicked out of the house Ann Archer, you know, gets in this accent, but he's taking care of her, but you don't feel like their relationship is back together. But now when she kills her, you're like, Oh, don't you see what I've been dealing with? She's a fucking nut. And then you're like, yes, she is a nut. And then we all walk away going like, Oh, they're going to live happily ever after they killed this nut job. And that I think is really weirdly it's that's why I think you walk away from this movie feeling like, oh, Michael Douglas is the hero and I'm glad that she got what she deserved instead of like this woman has mental health issues. Michael Douglas. Well, I mean, well, and I, mean, I want to say like to the credit of the people who made this movie, nobody really wanted to put this ending on it. Everybody felt like this ending was a betrayal. Adrian hated it. Adrian Lyon, he like freaked out. He was like, we're giving into the lowest common denominator. Sherry Lansing, she felt the same way. She was like, we made this film about how actions have consequences. And now the heads of the studio want to just change the whole point of this film. Like this is morally wrong. It's and a scarier our- movie well, with her killing herself. I mean, like this yeah. movie already is scary. Like, and that's a, like, and all of a sudden this guy goes to the electric chair. I mean, my God, that's a scary, like, like. Think it's about terrifying. That. I mean, but that, that's move. the kind of yeah. that's the kind of ending that you would have in like a 1940s noir. Like in the 1940s right. noir, absolutely, that guy would wind up on death row. He would never get off the hook for this. But in the 80s, they want him to. And like when Ann Archer hears that she has to shoot Glenn Close, she starts crying. She doesn't want to do it. Glenn Close absolutely is like you are going to betray this whole character that she's already played. She has done this movie. She has acted this part. She acted this whole part. And then they're like, go back and we want your character to die. And Glenn was like, you cannot make me do it. She started crying. She said she refused to do it for like two weeks, three weeks. And finally, she agreed to do it only just for the good of the team that they'd all made this movie together. But she hated it. But guess who had no objection to it? Uh, Michael Douglas. Like, yeah, yeah, Glenn started like talking. Glenn like asked Michael Douglas, how would you feel if they did this to your character? And he just says, babe, I'm a whore. But like oh it's like God. interesting. You hear Glenn. By the way, just Adrian Adrian Line is kind of a whore too because Adrian Line only did it when they gave him one point five million dollars. Well, yeah, but I mean he had to but, be. Uh, yeah, all right. Technically, he yes, he was bought. But he didn't. But he knew intellectually and morally that it wasn't the right ending. Like nobody thought this was right. But yeah, like Glenn has been asked about this time and time and time again. And like you know, she keeps. She has, I think, done a good job of trying to reconcile the fact that like because of this ending. It did at least help the film become a hit. What happened with me is is when I heard that they wanted to make me into a, basically a psycho, psychopath, mm-hmm. uh, where I'd go after someone with a knife rather than somebody who was self-destructive and basically tragic, um, it was a profound problem for me. Yeah. Because, as I told you, I did a lot of research about the character. And um, I felt, even though there were a lot of secrets and people might not have understood all the behavior... I did. So to be brought back six months later, I think it was, yeah. six months later, and told that you're going to totally change that character, it was very hard. And I think I fought against it for three weeks. Oh, you I did? I remember we had meetings. Oh, we, no, I we didn't. I remember. I remember. <laughs> no, I was but, so mad. But you were so good in the part. 
that everybody wanted you to be killed. Di- you know, died. they viscerally wanted somebody to put their hands around your throat. And it was really a, a result of you being so good. And, you know, she does sort of grapple with the reason why it had to happen. But when you hear her describe it, she's still kind of like, man, audiences. When I first read the script, it was, it was film noir, absolutely. They got the fight. Uh, she killed herself by cutting her throat with a knife, and his fingerprints were on the knife, and he went to jail. I think because Anne Archer was so beautiful and so <laughs> wonderful, and Michael was this you know star that everybody loved, it was so upsetting to everybody uh, that even though I killed myself, it wasn't punishment enough. <laughs> but also... She had to be killed worse. Yeah. Also, it's, it's the audience wanted to believe that that family might be able to survive. Yeah. yeah. So they got their catharsis by shedding my blood. Do you wish that the original ending had stayed? I don't think it would have been the huge hit that it became without the ending. But yeah, like, I, I think, like, she felt it was a betrayal. I feel like it's a betrayal watching it. It, it sucks, right? It sucks. And also, like, how the hell is she underwater that long and she still pops out? What? I mean, yeah, that is... Uh... How are that her eyes the, white? Like she's possessed by a demon me, and she still ask, pops out. Let me ask you a weird question though. Okay. What is the betrayal of this character in that moment? Like, can you explain it to me? Because I, I don't see, I, I understand Ann Archer, but I don't understand Glenn Close going, it's a betrayal of the character. I, I don't want to play cliches. Is it just that she gets killed like what? What is the difference here? Because what we're talking about is the the night after they have a one night stand, she cuts her wrist. The she then uh, uh, you know pretends to be somebody else to go into his apartment to live there. She's calling him nonstop. She's showing up to his work. She destroys his car. She kidnaps his kid. Um, she boils his bunny. She then breaks into his house. Like what? What? What's the betrayal there? Like that all feels to me like everything's going on the right track. I mean, I think to her, this was a character who was self-destructive, but not destructive towards the idea of like killing other women. Like she never right. up so until her, this point. Is her like, trying to kill an archer to get in their life is a is a bridge too far. But her trying to kill the kid's bunny is not, or her trying to kidnap the kid I is mean, not. I mean, Glenn always had an issue with the bunny thing, too, which she said, like, when she read the script, that was the one thing where she was like, mm, really? I don't get it. But well, it's like, like, it's, that, that's what I'm saying. It's like, this movie is a little bit flawed in this way because it's like, well, you reach out and hurt the child. That has nothing to do with Michael Douglas. That has nothing to do, like, you know, and you destroy his car. That makes sense, right? You you're just mind fucking him by meeting his wife, but she does want to meet his wife, right? That's the reason why she goes into the house. I mean, I think think she goes to the house just because he changed his phone number. I think she does that just to get the actual number. You don't think that she she wants to like get Anna, like to understand who Ann Archer is? I think that that's a bonus, but I think it's mainly that he changed his phone number because that's what we really see right ahead of that time. He changes his number. She can't reach him. She's pregnant with his baby. So she goes so to I the, the house, the, 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 and like, the, and that, and that scene ends with Ann Archer giving them the new phone number. So I mean, so the the idea to me is like this: the most memorable scene of this movie, or the most talked about scene, the scene that I knew about before this, I saw this movie was, uh, you know, she boils the bunny. That was that is like the not the joke, but that's like the the takeaway. That's the memeable moment, right? Duh, she's gonna boil your bunny, but that is probably the most 
uncharacteristic move that she makes in the film. And then that move is, you know, 10 minutes later is preceded by like her breaking into the house. And those two things like add up. And those two things, I think, devalue the entire, I think that that skews the entire movie and you leave. And when you talk about the movie, you got to talk about it from a much more uh, from a Michael Douglas as the hero perspective of it. Yeah, I, think I it can't just, figure out why she boiled the bunny. Like, I wonder if there's some deep, deep childhood dad thing with the bunny. I like, cause, it, or is she trying to warn Ellen? Cause Ellen, it seems to be around seven that life will be pain or something. Like, I, d- I don't understand it at all. You know, uh, I, yeah, like, again, I just think it's like, I think that this is where the movie has its trouble of like defining what this character is doing. Like we don't see her be destructive to herself. Her killing herself at the end is really interesting because I think one of the most telling scenes is when she invites him to go see Madame Butterfly. Then you see that she doesn't go to see Madame Butterfly, but instead she stays in her house and is playing the music and sitting there, turning the light switch on and off. And you're like, whoa, that to me is the most shocking scene of this entire movie but that third act where everything starts to get really really crazy the like exploding the car uh you know like those heightenings are different if you just had the tape like it's a much it's a difference between like a psychological thriller and like a villain like and a full-on villain she becomes the car the bunny the kidnapping and the breaking into the house are very intense things from a very subtle like incredible depression or cutting her throat, you know, cutting her wrists or, or just showing up or being around. Like, I don't know. I, I just think that yeah, that's why. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that we're more upset about her killing a bunny than we are about like him st- almost strangling her to death though. I, I agree with you, but I mean, but with these are things against children. She kidnapped a child and killed that child's pet. That's like, true. At, that at, point, at least the child doesn't know that when anything you kill bad an animal, happened in the kidnapping. Like, I mean, I'm yeah. not trying to justify kidnapping at all. But the kid gets some ice cream and it goes on a roller coaster and has no I idea mean, that anything she, bad happens. I mean, she's doing happens. that to fuck. She's not doing it to yeah. hurt the kid. But she, but when you watch that roller coaster scene, I, I think that she's trying to scare the shit out of that kid. Yeah. You know, I think that, like, you know, you look at that kid's face. That kid didn't want to be on that roller coaster. And 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 there is a fear there. I don't know. I I I... I I think that there are some things that make her a little bit of a confusing character. And I think that when you have anybody who kills an animal on screen, uh, you are going to make their villain done. Yeah. Their villain. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. I completely agree with that. I'm just pointing out that I do find it fascinating that we're like strangling pregnant woman. Fine. Uh, Bunny, not fine. And by the way, I I, I I agree. I totally agree with you. I just think that that is fascinating. I also will say that you totally forget that uh, that she's pregnant. Because when you said strangling a pregnant woman, I didn't even remember that. Like, I mean, because they, they say pregnancy early on in the movie, like very early on. And but like you don't even picture her as a pregnant woman anymore. Like they don't really talk about it that much anymore. Like it's it's sort of like just a, a yeah, thing. I mean, she talks about it, but he just keeps ignoring it like it's not happening. And the movie right. is finally like, OK. But like she she still very much feels like pregnant. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's ugh, ugh. Like, that's why I, I love talking about this movie is because this movie is, you know, what, 35 years old now? And it still feels like one of those kind of viscerally gripping, horrific movies that I just want to talk about because I find it so confusing and upsetting. And like the way that we've kind of 
reduce this character to a villain, despite, I think, the movie trying to point out how culpable he is most of the way through before it sells itself out for that ending. I mean, it's uh, fascinating. Yeah. Like, I, I think it's really interesting. And I think that, like, this is a movie that oddly, you know, when you watch it in 2022, you can have a more interesting conversation about it. You don't have to just yeah. exist with it in it being a what it was, because I think really what this movie is in 1987 is it is a you could have the perfect life and a woman will fuck it up. Like, you know, because she didn't play by the rules. And I think that that's the that's the main takeaway. Right. Like, yeah. I think that Except like on some that level, the like, rules you know, are created by men to benefit men. A hundred percent. I'm not saying anything wrong about that. I'm just saying. But that is what like what uh you like that's the weird takeaway of what no one's asking questions about like no one's asking questions about that uh you know in when they're seeing this movie because they're seeing it for face value and i think the ending just solidifies that even more well yeah i mean like they're on the cover of people magazine and like the rest of that issue is people magazine running stories about like actual people who lost it when they got dumped and it's mostly stories about like women going crazy which i also find worth flagging because you know, in the history of gender relations, I think women are more under threat from ex-partners, usually. And yet, if you watched our movies, it definitely seems like the opposite. Absolutely. You know, obviously, I think that what's so fun about this conversation is it it is murky. It's tricky to talk about. I think that the reason why 20 directors turned this movie down is because they didn't know how to handle it without making it cliched. I think that they fell into finding the right people. Adrian Lyne, at least from what I know of Adrian Lyne, I get why he wants to make this movie. I think he does want to make the movie that you're talking about. I just think that some of the choices cut it off at the, uh, you know, cut it off at its feet. And that and that to me, you know, it's not a it's not I think it overall makes a more interesting movie a more um, art house movie, right? Like th- this movie maybe doesn't make $300 million because, uh, you know, without that ending like that, I think, you know. No, I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. You know, what's interesting is like in the reviews that came out of this, Roger Ebert gave this film a negative review, but in a way because he nailed that something had gone really awry at the end oh, without, I think, knowing the whole story. I mean, this is what he wrote in his review. Fatal Attraction is a spellbindingly psychological thriller that could have been a great movie if the filmmakers had not thrown character and plausibility to the winds in the last minutes to give us their version of a grown-up Friday the 13th. Because the good things in this movie, including the performances, are so very good, it is a shame that the film's potential for greatness was so blatantly compromised. Mm. The movie is so right for so long that you can almost feel the moment when the script goes click and sells out. I wanted, for example, to hear a good talk between Douglas and Archer in which truth was told and the strength of the marriage was tested. I wanted to see more of the inner workings of Close's mind. I wanted to know more about how Douglas really felt about the situation. Although he grows to hate Close, is he really completely indifferent to the knowledge that she carries his child? The movie does not explore any of these avenues, though the filmmakers clearly have the intelligence to do so. What is the matter here? Do they lack the courage to follow their convictions through to the end? Fatal Attraction clearly had the potential to be an Oscar contender. I walked out feeling cheated and betrayed. You know, I think that, as always, Roger Ebert can really articulate something really well. And that these are the things that I'm missing, too. It's like you don't see any empathy for Michael Douglas. Like Michael Douglas is doesn't seem like he is so 
unaffected. And and in many ways, is this like real? Like just in that role of like typical eighties males, like ain't got n- nothing bothers him. Like yeah. like and I and I miss that. Like I like from what you're talking about in that opening of like a messy house and a and a, not a messy relationship, but just sort of like a casual like like you would expect this person to show a little bit more something, but it really just becomes a cat and mouse thing. I, yeah, I really, yeah. I, I, those things really jump out. I mean, his lack of feeling is what makes him feel so villainous to me. So I don't mind that. But I, yeah, I guess it would be interesting to see those questions explored, even though you're right, then it would just have been some sort of like interesting little drama that was not this gigantic sensation. By the way, can you imagine a world where this is the number two movie of the year again? I just want to live in a world where the box office is that, is that interesting? Is that all over the place? Yeah. Like, where people want to like spend money making movies like this, going to see movies like this, where you have just like a strange pop culture, you know, pulse to our box office. Well, yeah, I think that like at the end of the day, we want to see Psycho. Like this is Psycho, a sexual Psycho, right? This is like... You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, you make one, you know, you go to one wrong hotel and everything goes crazy. Like, you know, it's like it's like, you know, it's like this is we want clean. I think of for big blockbuster movies, we want clean, clear cut villains. I think we want to be told exactly what is what I think that Starship Troopers, you know, obviously plays around with that. Uh, We just talked about that. But it's like it's very hard, I think, to walk the line between aren't we all villains? Aren't we all, you know, people that can make mistakes, you know, and I think, you know, we'll still get those movies, but they're not going to be $300 million movies. We want to have the movie where the person gets shot in the face at the end. I mean, the version of this where Glenn Close plays by these like rules that Michael Douglas keeps saying exists, that's the kind of villainy that happens every day. Every day. Exactly. And by the way, so we're talking about this movie a lot and, and why it kind of rings true. And now they're making a remake of it right now. Which, you know, is going to be for Paramount Plus TV with Lizzie Kaplan in the role of Glenn Close. And I'm interested in it, but I'm also like, you know, without seeing anything and I'm uh, Lizzie is a friend, but I'm also like, I don't know anything about it. I'm curious that they made it un- like I'm curious to see what choices they make to continue that story. But I'm also uh, I'm surprised they didn't flip the script on it. Like make it uh, a guy who gets a little bit more, uh, you know, falls into this trap because I wonder how it will feel like it does it does feel like you know you you walk on this line of women be crazy right like and that to me is a tricky thing i they, i'm wondering how they're going to handle it because i think it's i think it maybe they will be able to go darker maybe they'll be able to make a, a you know because it's a mini series you could do more with it because uh, I, I do think that that character explored with the mental health issues you might buy into it more. You might be able to see it. You know, again, we're talking about a movie that's only two hours, so you can only do so much. But, uh, and we spent a lot more time with, we spent a lot more time with Michael Douglas than we do with her. I wonder, I wonder. Yeah, I'm I excited. I, well, I'm excited to see it. And I think Lizzie Kaplan's an amazing choice for that too. So I'm like, I, uh, so I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to see it, but I'm also curious if they correct the mistakes or they go down a similar path. Do you think that uh, Glenn Close should have won the Oscar for this and just like broken that Oscar drought that she's in now? Like eight nominations, no wins, tied with like the only person she's tied with for that many nominations and no wins is Peter O'Toole, who you do a great impression of. Oh, I do a great impression of Peter O'Toole. Uh, the, uh, but um, I, I don't know who she's up against, but I think that that is really, truly one of, it's a phenomenal performance. I mean, phenomenal. 
phenomenal. I think if she wasn't so good, we would not be talking about this movie today. No, and that's and that's completely right. I think be, regardless of everything, and even that I agree with Roger Ebert's review, the reason why this movie works is because she is a great villain. And the reason why she's a great villain is because I do think that she avoided a lot of cliches. And even though the movie tried to put her in these cliched moments, she transcended them, even making that ending work. Like that ending is a kind of a fuck you to what they're doing, but she makes it work. And... That to me, not the most important thing, but that's why this movie I think lasts and why this movie is interesting because you can, I, I watched this movie, I enjoyed the hell out of it. It was fun and it was great. And talking about it, we can break it all down, but at the, at the surface level, great performances, great direction, fun movie, problematic in parts. Yes, but it doesn't, it doesn't stop you from it. And that's all because of, of, of really grounded by her performance and because you don't know what you're getting from it like she's constantly keeping you on your toes well and if nothing else it gave saturday night live a great way to try to make sense of kelly ann conway and her need to be on the news (laughs) do you want a drink jesus kelly ann what the hell are you doing here i just want to be a part of the news jake this is how you do it by breaking into my apartment. Well, what was I supposed to do? You weren't answering my calls. You changed your number. I'm not going to be ignored. You don't get it, Kellyanne. You made up a massacre. We can't have you on. But I miss the news. Okay. Oh my God. I want to get mic'd. I want to feel that hot black mic pressed up against my skin. Is this the tie you wore in the news today? Well, one villain has been dispatched, and it's time to look ahead to our next villain in a film that many people consider one of the best films ever made. That's right. And one of the most iconic villains ever to be put on screen. I'm talking about Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter, starring Robert Mitchum. Uh, You might know this film because it's pretty iconic. Um, Many directors have taken their inspiration from it. And... I think we all recognize the tattoos on either hand, the love and hate that Robert Mitchum has on both of his hands. I've never seen this film, so I'm very excited to watch it. Take a listen to the trailer. Ben never told you he'd throw it in the river, did he? I can hear you whispering, children, so I know you're down there. I can feel myself getting awful mad. Here is all the passion and suspense, the heart-pounding warmth of the best-selling novel that gripped millions. Wake up! Come on! Superb, unforgettable performances by an extraordinary array of talent. Figured I was gone, huh? Run. Hide in the staircase. Run quick! Ruby, shit! What do you want? I want them kids. I'm giving you to the count of three to get out of here, then I'm coming across the kitchen shooting you. The combined powers of Paul Gregory and Charles Lawton brought the Kane Mutiny Court Martial to Broadway. Now the screen receives that same creative, electrifying impact. The Night of the Hunter. The Night of the Hunter is available wherever you get your streaming films, and it is available for free on YouTube. So next week, we'll be talking about that film. And in the meantime, I'm going to give a huge shout out to our amazing production team. I'm talking about Josh Richmond and 
Devin Bryant, as well as our engineer Ryan, our MVP Molly Reynolds, and our intern Jacob Morton. You can follow us uh, for more conversation about this film on our Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear in the Unspooled section. You can also visit us at tpublic.com slash Unspooled for all of our merch. We'll see you next week for The Night of the Hunter. Hunter.